Let's seek the Lord's grace as we come to His Word. Find your way to Numbers chapter 13 as we consider this text together today. Father, we need Your aid. We have sought to sing songs of the new life that praise Your name. Forgive us where we fall short in our joy, in our concentration, in our focus upon You and Your purposes for us in Christ. We're thankful that we can gather together in this way and read Your Word and seek You in prayer and lift up songs of hope. And I pray that You would now move in this congregation today and allow Your Word to minister grace to our souls, to provide challenge and encouragement, correction, and direction. We need you. We appeal to you. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ that these words that are spoken, the text that is considered carefully, would draw them to saving faith in Jesus. And for those of us who do know you, bring about great good and sanctifying grace through the ministry of the word we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Genuine followers of Jesus Christ walk by faith, not by sight. Positively, this means that we live in trusting response to who God is and to what God has said. Negatively, this means that we do not live in fundamental response to our own ideas, our own desires, our own self-interest. Living this way is as radical as it sounds. Our world urges us to live how? Go with your gut. If it feels good, do it. Do what's right for you. Do what makes sense to you. Let no one else dissuade you. We even hear the phrase now these days fairly routinely, believe your own truth, whatever that means. Speak your own truth. That's walking by sight. That's living by what we see and what we feel and what we desire day by day. Walking by faith requires that we believe that God is that He's really there, and it requires that we trust the reality of this promise concerning the future. Whatever His promises are, whatever He has said about that future, we trust it. We believe it to be the case. Imagine that you have a friend in Columbia, and you go down to visit, and you attend church, and the friend instructs you, I need to stay behind I want you just to walk on your own back to the house. I'll meet you there later. But one thing, on our street, we're being beset by these con artists. They pose as merchants, and they're really, really good. They are drawing people into drugs. They're drawing people into pornography. If it's not that that you're interested in, they will take your money one way or the other. They'll get you into something. They're really good at what they're doing. They might even hurt you. But as you walk along the road, there's this wall. Now listen to me carefully. You can climb over the wall. You can't get back up from the other side. It's the way it's constructed. But as you see, there's ivy growing on the top of the wall right along the way. If you go over there, there's a drug dealer that lives there with three Rottweilers and they'll eat you alive. And if they don't eat you alive, he will. Don't go over that wall. But a little further on, where the ivy stops, go over there, escape these people that way, and on the other side, that's where my grandmother lives. And she's likely to give you milk and cookies. And you can make your way through her yard off to our house, and all will be fine. Got this figured out, I've done it before, just follow my instructions and all is well. So you're going home. Sure enough, there they come. 
these con artists, merchants, drug dealers, whatever they are, peddling, they're coming at you and they've got their eyes set on you and they want to draw you in and you look up at the wall and what are you going to do? You're going to have to decide whether you trust your friend or not, and it's not real hard in this situation, is it? But you look at that wall with the ivy on it and you say, I, don't, I can't see what's beyond that wall. I don't know what's there. But I'm going to believe that what my friend says about the other side is true, and I'm not going over there. And so you climb the wall where there is no ivy, and you drop to safety on the other side. I say that, I illustrate this way to say that's in a sense what it is to live by faith. To live by faith is to say that I trust what God has said about the other side of the wall. I can't see it. I don't really know what it looks like. But what he said about the future, I'm going to act right now on the basis of what I can't see, but what I trust to be the case. To live by sight is to not even receive the friend's counsel in this illustration. To live by sight is just take on the merchants where they are. There might be something there they offer you that I really desire. I'm just going to feel it in the moment. I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to do what feels right for me. I'm going to find my own truth in the situation. They might offer this that I like. They might offer this that I like. They may rob me blind. I'm not thinking those things because I've never heard such counsel. I just live with what makes sense to me right now. I can't see on the other side of that wall. I have no idea what's over there, and it's not even an interest to me. I'm just dealing with the moment. That's living by sight. So as we look at this from God's standpoint, He is always faithful. He speaks the truth. He never fails to keep a single promise. He never steers us wrongly. But looking at our side of it, one of the ugliest sins we can commit is unfaithfulness to Him. To live as if He is not there and that what He says about the future cannot be trusted. In our illustration, to walk down that road, run into the merchants, and invite them into discussion with us. And what would our friends say after we've been robbed blind and left maybe beaten on the side of the road? He'd say, I told you what was going to happen. Why did you not believe me? Why did you not follow through on what I said? It would be tremendous disloyalty in this friendship for us to just do our own thing with these merchants. Multiply this infinitely with God. He is trustworthy. His truth is given to us for our good And we can count on Him. Now this then, as we relate to Him this way, comes with two interlocking aspects in our life. The first is trust. It made clear already, but let's focus on these two ideas. There's trust and there's fidelity. Trust on the one side says, God is trustworthy. He will not fail. And what follows from that trust is fidelity. I cannot fail him. And we know we can in sin. I don't mean it that way. But what I mean is that I must be loyal to this one who only speaks the truth for my good. But as we know, all of this is, does not come easily to us. Because those merchants are really good. They are very tempting. And there is a way that we are bent by nature to want to trust our own truth, our own ideas, to go with our gut, to do what makes sense in the moment, and to doubt God. And this brings us to the sojourning nation of Israel as they make their way north along the Sinai Peninsula toward the land that God has promised them. The wall is there. They don't know the future. 
But God has talked about life on the other side of that wall. And he says, trust me, I'm giving you this land. I want you to go into it. And so as we encounter the text here in chapter 13, we find first of all that God commissions spies to reconnoiter the land. That's not a word you use every day, is it? Reconnoiter. But it is a military term and it's perfect for this situation. It simply means that for military purposes, they are going to survey the land. They're going to examine it and see what it, what, how they should strategize for their military invasion. Now let's say, and we'll have perhaps more to say about it in the weeks ahead, but the right, what right do they have to possess this land? So remember that for four centuries, God has waited patiently for the evil of the Canaanites to metastasize, to deepen, to grow, to come to full rot. And they have come to that place now, after 400 years of God's patience. And so it is time for them to possess this land. It is right for them to do so. And the necessity of this reconnoitering process is that it is an occupied land. The Canaanites live there. So in our journey here, by way of the map, Israel has made their way from Goshen in Egypt across the Red Sea by God's miraculous intervention down to Mount Sinai where God gives his law meets with Israel, comes down off of the mountain in the glory cloud and gives instructions for the tabernacle which, is, which gifts are given, it is constructed and now goes before Israel. The glory cloud leading Israel and shading Israel and God providing as they make their way northward to the promised land. We've come now in the book of Numbers to where they are stationed at Kadesh Barnea. It is an oasis in this wilderness of scrub and sand and dry grasses and a a very ideal place for them to station this endeavor. It's not been a smooth journey, has it? We've looked at three different moments of rebellion. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, there is a complaint about the conditions. This is not a fun journey, and they are not happy campers. God brings judgment into Israel's life because of this complaint. The second rebellion, chapter 11, verses 4 through 34, we don't like the food. There's not enough of it. There's not enough variety. And God again judges Israel for her complaining. This is just a camping journey northward to the promised land, but they cannot endure this. And so they ask for food. And then we looked last week at chapter 12, verses 1 through 16, where there was a challenge of Moses' authority. And God again judges the nation. We come now to chapters 13 and 14, and we see the height of rebellion in Israel's experience in their walk to the promised land. It's been a rough journey all along, but God in his mercy has continued to lead Israel. Now they are at the doorstep of the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, we find some added information, and that is that actually the nation comes, the leaders come to Moses and say, it's Moses says it's time to go into the land, and they say, well, we need to do some survey work. We need to send some spies in. We need to be prepared to know the lay of the land. But here we find in chapter 13 that God indeed commissions them uh, in response to their request, but certainly because this is what is necessary. He orders First of all, their mission. Verse 1 of chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. One capable spy chosen from each tribe of Israel. In one sense... This mission is unnecessary. They could go into the land and just trust God one battle at a time. But in another sense, this is how providence works. God promises 
God directs his people and then they go to work and bring it about. God's promise to give Israel the land is no more a call to laziness than is Christ's promise to win lost souls, indicating to us that we should sit around and wait for it to happen. And so as providence works, the churches evangelize and the armies gather intelligence. God has promised victory, but Israel must believe and she must skillfully execute this invasion. And so, God ordering the mission, we move forward. Then, secondly, in verses 3 to 16, Moses musters the spies. He draws them together. He gathers his group. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. That's kind of the general statement. That's what's going to happen here. Now, the list, verse 4, and these were the names from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zachar, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, And that's an important name to note, Caleb. Verse 7, from the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Another very important name to note. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michal. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Zophsi. From the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Maki. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua, the Lord saves, and uh, some foreshadowing here as Joshua will obviously stand for God and be a significant leader in Israel, in fact, taking the mantle from Moses in the end. As we come to to verse 17 then, Moses will now brief the spies. What's your task? We've gathered the spies, I'm, no doubt these are very skilled warriors. They're probably very physically fit. They're probably very uh, wise, uh, capable individuals. Now Moses briefs them as to what this mission will entail. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. And see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or whether they are many. And whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. Are they living in tents or behind walled cities? And whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes, end of July, early August. That is foreshadowing there, the reference to the grapes, of the mission of what the mission will reveal. The Negev, we know, is the southern arid region. The central city there is the city of Hebron. Let's think on this. Hebron is hallowed ground. For the Israelites. What happened at Hebron? These centuries before, this is the only part of land that Abraham purchased was at Hebron. He bought the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah are buried. Where Isaac and Rebekah are buried. Where Jacob and Leah are buried. There's no other such spot in Canaan like this spot. I think it's also significant that this is the place from which Abraham fought a coalition of kings and defeated them. 
in a sense, a foreshadowing of this day four centuries earlier as there was conquest in the land by Abraham. Not a whole lot happened with him. He didn't gain great tracts of land, but he purchased this cave and he did lead a military exposition here. He leads that from Hebron here and now sending them from the Negev, this arid, dry southern region, northward into the hill country. We just follow on these maps here. So we've, we've traced their journey thus far. And now northward, the spies will go a, a, through the land to the far north, turn around and come back or to get a little closer look at it. They'll go from the Negev, the south, where it's more arid, through this central hill country. And they go quite a ways forward. It's, it's a very aggressive mission. They're not going to be sitting around and testing the grapes. They're going to find them and they're going to head home. In fact, I think they probably pick up the grape cluster that they do on their way back. But they move very quickly. And Moses said, says to them, I think this is significant, be of good courage. Be of good courage. What does that mean? That means trust God. They could be paralyzed by fear. If you just think about it for a few moments, put yourself in their situation. This is a frightening endeavor. And Moses says, be courageous. Trust God's word, trust God's promises, and do this thing. We find then thirdly that the spies report Uh, I'm sorry, they fulfill their mission in the land, beginning at verse 21. So they went up, and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo Hamath, that is from the south, the far south, to the far north. They went up into the Negev, southern arid region. They came to Hebron. Ahaman, Sheshi, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. These are great warriors. And the parenthetical note, Hebron was built seven years before Zone in Egypt. I think that's a way of saying it's a really important city. You've probably heard the Greek name of this Egyptian city as Tanis. Hebron was, was built before that. And so it was a very significant city. And they came to the Valley of Eskol. This would be in the southern portion. And they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskol because because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Oh, we Minnesotans who get our grapes shipped to us. We know very little about them. But they say that to this day, the grapes in this valley can grow to the size of a small plum. And that clusters, single clusters cut off of the vine can weigh up to 12 pounds, if you can imagine. It's a lot of grapes. Imagine what it might have been in this day, at this time. They bring this cluster on their way back as, in a sense, initial spoils from the land. Thirdly, then, we see the spies report their reconnaissance to Israel. So they've made the journey, they've come back, and now it's time to report. Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they're coming back with these spoils. They're showing them what they have found. And they report that on fertile fields and agricultural abundance. They're gone for 40 days, again indicating that they maintain a pretty aggressive pace. And what they report is, verse 27, about this fertile land, that we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. 
milk doesn't mean milk is pouring through the rivers. But it flows with milk means what? It means that there is pasture land here. You can raise cows and goats. It's not like this wilderness. It's fertile. And you can raise, you can gain milk here. Honey also doesn't just mean the honey from bees, but was a word that would apply to fruit that had been boiled down. And so like honey-like consistency, they would store grape juice, for instance, boil it down into a syrup that might be something like our maple syrup or like the consistency of honey as we would know it. And the point is, this is just a, a figurative way of saying this is a place of great abundance. The figure of speech. It's a glowing report. But let's look a little closer. These guys are not smiling. They're telling the people, they're reporting back what wonderful fertility is here and we're noticing their brows are furrowed. And did you notice something else? Did it slip by? The land to which you sent us. Not good. Not good at all. The land to which you sent us. What is this land, properly speaking? It's the land God promised to Abraham. The man of faith. The land that he promised to Israel. God's chosen people. This is God's country, not the land to which you, Moses, sent us. Rather than point upward in praise of the Lord for this gift, they lower everybody's eyes and, in a sense, poke a finger in Moses' chest. The land you sent us to. It's indeed very good. It would make all of us forget about the fish fries in Egypt. And now the furrowed brows grow deeper and the troubled eyes grow darker as we come to verse 28 and they say, however. Oh, that ugly word. When it's spoken of God... The howevers and buts of the Bible are wonderful. This darkness, but God. But in this situation, it's the other way around. This wonder, however. That one single letter in the Hebrew text with a supplied vowel. One single letter serves in the text like an 18-wheeler barreling down a hill that suddenly applies the air brakes with full force. There is screeching, there is billowing smoke here, however, hold everything, the spies slobber. We've told you about the fertility. Now, let us tell you about the fortified cities and the powerful armies. However, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. The Hebrew text here again is instructive. But strong are the first two words. But strong are the people. The warriors are mighty. The city walls are thick and high. And the people are many. And besides verse 28, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea as well as along the Jordan. Anak, a legendary people of unusual size. The point is that there are strong militaristic nations occupying each region. Let us tell you as we return, we are in big trouble. This is not good. Let it sink in and watch now life unfold. This is our life as the people of God. And that is point four, two opposing responses. This is where God has led us. This is the situation we are in. 
two different responses. The first is living by faith. Caleb speaks for God. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb does not mention God here. I think for the for one reason, for the primary reason, is he doesn't need to. It's crystal clear what he's talking about. The man is not insane. He does not believe Israel can overwhelm the Canaanite armies in their own strength. He, in fact, confirms the report of the strength of the Canaanite armies, of the walled cities. We saw them, Caleb would say, by way of interview. What he's saying is that God can be trusted and we must remain faithful to carry out His will. You see those two aspects. What God has said can be trusted and it is our responsibility then to trust Him. To prove faithful to His calling. We can do this in His strength. He's calling them to live by faith as He is and not to live by sight. Chapter 14, God will say of Caleb, he has followed me fully. He has proven faithful. He has met my word with fidelity. That's what we see here displayed. But what we see secondly in response is living by sight as the spies mutiny against God. Verse 31, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up. That's what... Caleb had said, we are able to go up. They're saying, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. It, 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 it's so sad you can't really laugh, but how ironic, as if anybody was saying anything else. Nobody was saying we're stronger than they are. That was not the debate. Of course, these nations were stronger, much stronger they were militaristic people. Israel had been in slavery very recently. You don't arm slaves with swords and teach them how to use spears. They don't take a chariot to work as they make bricks. These people have no idea really what they're doing. It's not the point. But wow. This is the nation of slaves who without a single weapon were recently delivered from the, by the strong hand of God from the most powerful army on the planet. This is the nation that escaped the Egyptian army with its spears and swords and chariots and war horses. As if stronger meant anything whatsoever in this context. Had God not proven as much? But these spies convince one another to focus on a ridiculous comparison. Not the comparison between the strong arm of God and the Canaanites, but the ridiculous comparison of the Canaanite armies and Israel's army. That's how they chose to calibrate the comparison. Verse 32 so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There we saw, let's remember this, we saw the Nephilim there, these powerful ones, unusually large people, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. The land devours its inhabitants. That doesn't mean it's inhospitable. That doesn't mean that it's hard to cultivate. It was a fertile, beautiful land. What it means is it's a land inhabited by powerful armies that are fighting with one another to keep their place. And there are armies outside of this place that are salivating to get a piece of it. Get in that land and you'll be eaten alive. We might picture a little bit like some 
Amish farmers from, who've lived in a narrow valley in western Pennsylvania their whole lives. And they leave that idyllic farmland and comfort of that valley and they go to Queens in New York City considering a relocation. And they say, we're not ready for this. We will be eaten alive on these streets. We don't know how to operate here. That's where these spies are. We can't handle this. That place is going to eat us up. We're like grasshoppers. Caleb and Joshua, seeing the very same thing, see a glorious opportunity. And this is one of the fascinating things about faith. People see the very same troubles. They suffer the same insurmountable weaknesses. The same heartaches, the same trials, the same causes of suffering. I hope I'm not talking to anybody here, but if you're like, I'm unique. I suffer in a way. I've had experiences nobody else has happened, no one one else has ever seen or could really understand. Just cancel that idea. It's not a good one. Maybe most people you know have not faced the same trouble, but there are people that have. God told us this. Don't distrust him. There's no temptation that's taken us but what is common to man. God has spoken. What you're going through is not all that unusual. Unique to you, unique to some circumstances in in, in the situation, but not unusual. We face trouble. We face suffering. Yet one person responds in faith, trusting God and prospering spiritually, and another lives by sight and is consumed with bitterness, with grief, with self-pity or spiritual debility of some sort. Let's not miss this. Caleb and Joshua saw exactly what the other spies saw. Their, Their eyes saw the same thing. We don't see Caleb taking up this argument. Oh, come on, guys. Don't be so negative. The walls weren't really that formidable. I saw some cracks in them. They weren't really that high. The armies were pretty shaky in my estimation. I think you guys are being negative. I think you're overcasting the negativity here. None of that. I think if we interviewed Caleb, he'd say, grasshoppers? Yeah, Um, they could crush us under their army boot real easily. But I think it'd also be fair to say that he would answer, but we serve the living God. And that's all the difference. He delivered us from Egypt. He is giving us this land. Yes, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what heartaches we're going to find, but we know His Word about that future, and I believe Him. For Caleb, this was about faith in those two aspects. I trust His Word, and I'm going to walk with fidelity to do what He's called me to do. Come with me. Let's go. I don't know what's on the other side of the wall. He couldn't see that. But because he believed God, he said, I've got to act now, not on the basis of what I see, but on the basis of what God has promised will be. I can't conquer this land. We cannot defeat these armies. We cannot topple these walls. But God already has. As far as he is concerned, it's a done deal. The only issue is, are we going to be the people that go with him? Brothers and sisters, can you imagine the joy of the old heart of Caleb when he saw the walls of Jericho crumble 40 years later? He never thought it would be that far off. 
but he knew God had already done it. How do you beat these walls? How do you beat these people? I don't know, but I know what God has said. And with everybody shouting in his ear, everybody trying to talk him down, everybody trying to discourage him, everyone saying, hey, the majority's not with you, he said, I'm with God. And that's all that matters. By faith, the steadfast anchor of his soul was his trust in God's word that led him to see what was real. Not what was sight, not what was perceived by the majority. As God's people today, our world is so very different, isn't it? Our battles are not against flesh and blood. We're not called to physical conquest like this. Yet our life's mission to trust God and remain steadfastly loyal to Him is every bit as daunting and every bit as important. Maybe not so on the pages of salvation history. This is a unique moment. But very much so on the pages of our own personal history as a church, as believers, for the call of God upon us right now It's very real. Our disbelief is not fearing the Anakim. But our disbelief is just as irrational. The irrationality is stunning, isn't it? God has delivered them from Egypt with ten plagues. He has split the Red Sea. He's provided food in the wilderness. And they get to the edge of it and say, we can't do this. As if that was ever the point. But this is where trusting your eyes takes you when you won't trust your ears, so to speak. It's what they see that frightens them silly. But what they hear from God, they disregard. What is it for us? It's not deliverance from Egypt and deliverance through the Red Sea. It is Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the death of the Son of God, then in victorious resurrection over the enemy of death itself, defeating, crushing Satan's head. That's our deliverance. We have been, by faith we believe, delivered from hell and every enemy of our souls as we put our trust in Christ as Savior. He has secured for us a future in eternity with the risen Christ. I have been united with Him. I am seated with Him in the heavenlies. He has prepared this salvation for me. He's done it all. He's beaten all the enemies. He's promised what the future will hold. And I don't trust His word about the details of my life. It's utterly irrational. God has not done lesser things for us. God has done greater things for us. As he defeated death in Christ, yet we fall prey to this disbelief. And we could go on all afternoon describing ways in which we do, but let me just list a few, just to stir our minds, to challenge us to think. God has said, fear not. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I will take you, care for you, carry you, protect you. He has said that. We can find numerous places in Scripture where he's made this claim. Do not fear man who can only kill the body, but fear God alone. He said that. And yet I'm ashamed to admit to people that I'm a follower of Jesus. I hide it at work. I hide it in my neighborhood. I hide it among family. I hide the fact that he's purchased me. And when he has said, I will protect you, I will keep you, I will take you home, yet we fear man. 
We're ashamed of Christ at times, even though we know what's on the other side of the wall. What's on the other side of the wall is that every knee will bow to him as Lord. Every single knee. And yet I live today afraid. We shudder to stand against the exalted sins of our culture. What the majority is saying, where people are leaning, what's important. we're, We're afraid when God's word says something else. We know every knee will bow, but yet we withdraw and we fear. God's word, secondly, says God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I need to work. I need to be diligent, I need to trust him, I need to use skill in the management of money, but he has said, I will meet your needs. And how many hours do we spend worrying about whether he'll meet our needs? It's disbelief. It's that don't really trust his word about what's on the other side of the wall in time. He's saying, I'm going to meet you there and you're going to see me and you're going to know I supplied your needs. Thirdly, he says that he will work all things together for our good, Romans 8. All of the circumstances of my life, God promises I am going to knit them together to bring about a greater weight of glory in the future. You can trust me in this. I've saved you. I've delivered you from sin, from Satan, from death. I'm going to deliver you through this. And I'm working all things together for good such that you can actually rejoice in trials. God says this and we say, I don't think so. I really doubt it in my circumstances that you could possibly work this together for good. This is just bad, bad, bad. He conquered the grave. He paid the penalty of our sins. He justified us and reconciled us to the Father. He saved us eternally, and yet we doubt his plan when we suffer pain and disease and wayward children and broken relationships, when we face marital trouble and debt and loneliness. Not in my case. Number four, we doubt. We doubt when Jesus says, I have conquered death. I have saved a people for my name. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. People will be saved by my grace. Maybe not by your lips. Certainly not every time that you share that gospel. But the authority comes from me to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And we say, not me. Not going to happen. Don't really believe it, honestly, sometimes, that God could save that person. And when we begin to say he can't save that person, then we don't share the gospel there, and we begin to develop a pattern where we don't share the gospel anywhere because God couldn't possibly save him or her. It's disbelief. We don't believe what God has said about the other side of the wall that we can't see, that there is a reigning Christ, that he is saving a people for his name, and that he sends us into the world to reach them with this message. And we don't trust him. And in some respects, maybe in ultimate respect, the most dangerous disbelief might be one of which you are guilty And that's to be sitting here and hearing this and to say, I don't believe Jesus is the Savior. I really don't believe the story that He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh, has died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of that sin, rose from the dead, reigns in heaven today, and is coming again. That he'll resurrect the dead. I don't believe. 
I encourage you to pray the prayer, God, help my unbelief. Give me faith in Christ. There is some sense in which there is nothing you can do any more than the Israelite armies could go into Canaan and win on their own, in their own strength. But I would call you to throw yourself upon God and to say that what's on the other side of the wall is indeed real. You're going to be in a world where the vast majority of people tell you it's not real. Come on, we're more rational than that. This is ridiculous fantasy myth. Turn away from it. And in your heart you're saying, yes, I think that's right. That disbelief is killing you because it's not reality. It's the lie. And pray that God will help you to see it. Pray to embrace the truth. God is trustworthy. And His call upon us is to believe Him. And to live in a loyalty that would say to somebody outside of Christ who could look at the whole scene, this person lives today on the basis of what God has promised about the future. Their life is synchronized there. I can see it. Because they're doing things that are weird, irrational, aren't what the majority think. They are clearly living off the tip sheet of somebody else. And we know that to be the risen Christ. And we live by faith in what he said. May God give us courage. Courage to believe Him in a world that is pressed against Him. Courage to believe that we will conquer in His name. Let's pray. We ask this of You, Lord and Savior. We ask that You grant us this courage and strength, that You would teach us Your purposes and strengthen us for Your glory. For those who know not Christ, may they take no offense just in me, If there are offenses in Christ, we stand together and still love them. But I pray that you draw to Christ those who know Him not yet as Savior. I pray that the reality of what Jesus has done will dawn on each of us and that this week we will live with trusting courage in Christ in whose name we pray.